0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to JPD Weekly. We have a lot of important things to talk about today. With popular shows such as Ancient Aliens promoting the belief that ancient gods were just mistaken extraterrestrials, the world is now very familiar with ancient astronaut theory. And we've been getting a lot of new reports and more coming uh, in the official disclosure movement area. A lot lot of stuff from the government actually admitting... Involvement in UFOs and uh, lots lots more to come. We as the church, we as Christians need to be at the forefront of this conversation because we know... Uh, We really know what's going on here. We know that there's a spiritual reality that doesn't accommodate uh, some of the things that are promoted by ancient astronaut theory. And right now, ancient astronaut theory is the leading um, idea or the leading explanation for these things, for UFOs, for um, life in the universe, for things like that. Part of what this show is all about is to edify the body of Christ. And in order to do that, we need to know what's going on. We need to know how to answer certain questions that people will have, especially if we're going to be spreading the gospel. Now, with all of this official disclosure stuff coming out, and again, more is coming, because of that, more and more people are going to want to know how we as Christians uh, are going to discuss the the alien question. You know, where do we see that in the Bible? And... Surprisingly, we've done a few videos on this. I've written a book on it. There's actually been several really good books on it. Um, You can check out Exo Vaticana by uh, Tom Horn. That's a great book. Um, Me and Derek Gilbert's book, The Day the Earth Stands Still. We talk about quite a bit of the theology around, um, you know. uh, how Christians can look at the alien question. Not only that, but we look at the occultism found in the official disclosure movement. So having all of this information, knowing all of these things, can really help us bring the gospel to the world because we'll be able to answer questions that people have. Now, one thing that uh, people will say, they'll, they'll look at creatures in the Bible such as Leviathan and Behemoth, and there's a lot of different speculations as to what these are. Some will say that they're dinosaurs, some will say that they're personifications of some type of idea, like chaos, Uh, and others, uh, this is more in the non-Christian camp, others will say that they're some sort of otherworldly creature, even an alien of of some kind. Uh, Now, I do believe that these are otherworldly creatures, but spiritual in nature, and I want to talk about that. I really want to talk about the history behind Leviathan, and behemoth and how we can actually find these agents of chaos in the bible now there's also many uh, ancient texts especially those from the ancient near east that are used to support the ancient astronaut theory claim among um, most, uh, if you ever have seen the show Ancient Aliens, uh, you'll see a lot of times they'll quote from ancient Sumerian or Babylonian or even Jewish texts. But there are certain inconsistencies found within those texts that do not seem to promote ancient astronaut theory. So, for example, in the creation uh, mythology of Baal, the gods existed in a watery abode. Ancient astronaut theorists might be tempted to think of this as like a water world exoplanet, and if that were the case, and if these alien gods communicated with mankind, we should expect beliefs around those communications to develop within their culture and religion. But why is it, then, that large bodies of water, such as the sea, were more more closely related to concepts of chaos and death in those belief systems? So if alien creator gods came from water world exoplanets, shouldn't The seas of earth represent life rather than death. A closer look at the ancient texts themselves can actually provide a clearer picture of the whole story. Uh, And so this is one claim that I want us as Christians to know how to handle. So they'll bring up the Enuma Elish. It's a Babylonian epic of creation. It's also known as the Seven Tables of Creation. Uh, All of the tablets containing the creation myth were found at Asher, Kish, Nineveh, Uh, Saltante and other excavated sites. The tablets date to around 1100 BC, uh, but there are indications that they are actually copies of much older versions of the story. Uh, the basic myth describes the birth of the gods, the universe and human beings. Uh, so according to this epic and, and by the way, when you, when you read this stuff, don't, you can't really look for logic in the way that you can with the Bible. Uh, cause the Bible, if it says something a little strange, it'll, it'll just kind of explain it for you. Um, or it'll say, well, this is a metaphor that means this, you know, it does that a lot, but these, these ancient epics aren't like that. They'll just say, yeah, the world was created from half of a carcass of a God or something. And they won't really explain how that works. Uh, so these aren't really like logic based. They're they're very strange. But um, so according to this, in the beginning, you know, according to this this story, and again, it's a myth. There's no truth in it. But um, it's not comparable with the Bible like like that. But uh, according to this myth, there was nothing else except chaotic water everywhere in the beginning, and out of the movement of the water, and, and see, even right there, they don't explain where the water came from. But uh, they didn't have a scientific kind of you know, materialistic mind to, to think about that stuff back then. But um, out of the movement of the water, the, the water's divided into fresh and salt water. The fresh water was identified as the god Absu, while the salt water is identified as the goddess Tiamat. Now, through these two entities came the birth of younger gods. The younger gods were noisy, they were troubling Absu, so upon the advice of Mumu, um, Absu decided to kill the younger gods Tiamat heard of this and warned uh, Enki, her eldest son, and so, sometimes uh, it's Ia it's instead of Enki, but uh, warned Enki, so he put Absu in a sleep and killed him. And Enki then created his home from Absu's remains. Tiamat became angry over Absu's death and consulted with another figure named Quingu, who uh, advised her to bring war against the younger gods. Um, Tiamat... Gave uh, Quingu the the tablets of destiny, which solidifies the rule of a god. Uh, Quingu wore the tablets as a breastplate. Um, Tiamat then summoned the forces of chaos and created eleven monsters to destroy the younger gods. Ea slash Enki uh, again two different names, same figure and other younger gods fought against Tiamat, but were unable to win the battle until Marduk uh, emerged as a champion among them. Now, Marduk defeated Quingu and killed Tiamat by shooting her with an arrow, splitting her in two. Marduk then created the heavens and the earth from Tiamat's corpse, have to make the heavens, have to make the earth. Again, there's no logic here because it's like, well, where were they living then? You you know, I mean, these kinds of questions don't really get answered in in these strange epics. Um, in these mythologies. Now in the Bible, if you have questions like that, you can find an answer, but in these, uh, it's it's just illogical. But uh, so anyway, so after that, he uh, then appointed jobs to the younger gods and bound Tiamat's 11 monsters to his feet as trophies. Uh, he then took the tablets of destiny from Quingu, thereby solidifying his reign. Uh, Marduk then talked with uh, Ea, recognized as the god of wisdom, and decided to create human beings. He did this by killing the gods who convinced Tiamat to go to war. Uh, Quingu was found guilty and killed. Ea created Lulu, the first man from the blood of Quingu. Lulu's job was to help the gods in their task of maintaining order and keeping chaos restrained. Uh, Now keep that in mind, the the restraining of chaos, because that's actually going to come up later in our study today. so the, the story then ends with a long praise of Marduk for everything he did. The entire story is about chaos being subdued by the destruction of a great sea beast. That's Tiamat. So in other words, the, the sea beast is a symbol for chaos. Now, there's actually a similar story that can be found in the Ugaritic uh, Baal cycle. Ugarit was an ancient city located in what is now uh, Ras Shamra in northern Syria. In the uh, second millennium BC, the population of Ugarit was Amorite and would have controlled roughly 2,000 square kilometers on average. Uh, During some of its history, Ugarit would have been directly within or at least in close proximity to the Hittite Empire. Now, Ugarit was uh, destroyed in the early 12th century B.C., and its location was forgotten until 1928, when a uh, peasant accidentally discovered an old tomb. The area of the tomb was found to be the necropolis of Ugarit. Excavations have since revealed a city with a prehistory reaching back to about 6,000 B.C., which is pretty amazing. Now, archaeologically speaking, Ugarit is considered Canaanite, uh, arguably, the most, con- uh, most important literary document discovered from Ugarit is the Baal cycle, which some of you uh, may be somewhat familiar with. It describes the basis for the belief system surrounding the Canaanite deity Baal. So we read about Baal quite a bit in the Bible. Baal is basically Satan, <clears throat> essentially. You know, there, there's a little bit of contention with that. But ba- basically, Baal is Satan. So uh, the Canaanites <clears throat> worshipped this entity. And the Baal Cycle tells us about their beliefs. Now, uh, Ugarit bordered the the northern Israelite kingdom and can be considered the center of ancient Baal worship. Uh, Further importance in this is the discovery of the Ugarit language, which is closer to biblical Hebrew than any other Semitic language. language. Uh, There are extremely interesting word-for-word parallels between Ugarit myths and passages in the Old Testament that show clear polemics. And a polemic is a, a controversial argument intended as an attack on a differing belief or an idea if you're not familiar with that word. And we're going to explore this a little bit later but we can read the creation account in the Bible and actually see a polemic to the Baal cycle. So the and again that doesn't add legitimacy to the Baal cycle. I want to I want to be very clear about that. A polemic is it's almost making fun of of uh, another belief or another thing. So the bail cycle has this weird creation account. So the the idea is in the creation account of the Bible, the the writer was was using the bail cycle in a sense of like, you know, kind of saying like, well that's so dumb, that that's not at all how it is. Here's how it is. And then borrowing elements of it not not as like as factual information, but borrowing elements of it to, to make fun of it, to like kind of poke theological jabs at it. Uh, You know, something kind of similar though, not, not exactly, uh, Today we might, if I like, if I write a nonfiction book, if I, if I write uh, something factual, and I want to uh, explore the ideas of those who disagree with me, I might quote from their books. You know, it doesn't mean that I'm adding legitimacy to their books. It just means I'm using that to make my own very different theological point. It, it's sort of the same thing, except in polemics, there's more of a there's more of a kind of sarcastic element to it, sort of. Now, the Baal cycle isn't as much about creation as it is a competition between gods in order to win a position of rulership with the supreme god El. Uh, It describes a battle between Baal, meaning lord, and Yam, meaning sea, and another battle between Baal and Mot, and Mot means uh, death. Yam is also called Nahar, meaning river, and is also described as a sea monster with seven heads named Latanu, the Canaanite word for Leviathan, believe it or not. So this is where it gets really fascinating. Now, in the Baal cycle, Yam is a symbol for the sea and the forces of chaos, uh, comparable to Tiamat in the Enuma Elish. Baal defeats Yam and is declared king of the other gods, yet still under El. He's given the uh, titles uh, Rider on the Clouds, which that probably sounds familiar because we see other polemics. Uh, From that in the Bible. Uh, Most High, he's described as having an everlasting dominion. Now, to an ancient Near Eastern person, the sea was considered extremely dangerous, chaotic, and even otherworldly. The sea is untamable, it's unpredictable, it's wild. Uh, sea creatures themselves were even symbolic portrayals of the place in which they lived, the sea. And this is why we see the symbol of the sea and the, and a great sea beast or monster or dragon represented in the religious texts of the ancient Near East. So to those people, there was no better representation of death than, uh, of death and chaos than the sea. And we even see that idea turn up in the Bible. Now, what we're going to look at is considered common knowledge in uh, theological and scholarly circles, but for some reason, it's, it's pretty much unknown in, main, in the mainstream church. And I, I believe a big part of this is due to a, a common kind of hyperliteral approach to the Bible that's found in many churches today. And that's a topic that we'll. Uh, we've talked about before uh, in other videos, and I wrote about in the Day the Earth Stands Still. Now I maintain a, a literal view of the Bible myself, uh, but there there are hyper literal movements that I, I think can be uh, kind of damaging. Um, there's many reasons why this developed over time. You know, one example is the popularity of reading the Bible as if it were written to 21st century Americans. So that that's something, in some of these hyper literal. Um, camps, they will, they'll literally take the Bible, flip it to a page and say, that's for me today. Um, That's like divination. Uh, And and so they they treat the Bible as if it is literally like God's like personal love letter to that individual. Now, in a sense, you could look at it that way, but the the Bible, the Bible is for us, but not to us, if that makes sense. It was written to uh, ancient Israelites, It's for everybody. But we need to we we can't just cast off the context and then expect that we're gonna know anything about it. So, you know, again, the Bible is for everybody, but like all ancient texts, it was written to the culture of the time. So we currently are at least two thousand years and half a world removed from the ancient Jewish culture and which most of the Bible, much of the Bible was written. The best way to understand and interpret the Bible is to put yourself in the ancient writer's shoes. So what, what was going on at the time of the writing? Uh, what was the writer dealing with in terms of competing theologies? What was the cultural environment like at that time? And by asking those questions and looking at the text through ancient Near Eastern eyes, we can actually gain a wealth of correct and intelligently um, honest understanding of the scriptures. Now, that brings us back to the idea of uh, of a polemic. So, as I stated briefly earlier, a polemic is like a type of theological jab at a different religion or belief. And these show up all over the text in the Bible. The, the idea was not always to give a literal account of something, though many times it is, but, but to attribute credit to the true God of Israel, Yahweh. So, for example, in the Baal cycle, we find the term rider on the clouds attributed to Baal. Yet, throughout the Bible, Yahweh is referred to in the same way. Um now does Yahweh literally ride on the clouds maybe probably i don't know <laughs> you know who knows i mean there there are accounts of god's heavenly chariot coming down and there's a whirlwind so if that's clouds then yeah you could say that he literally is the rider on the cloud. But rider on the cloud was a title that was attributed to Baal. So when they called Yahweh that, uh, it was it was stripping Baal of his title and giving dominance to Yahweh. So there's a deeper meaning there than than uh, just the, the hyper-literal view. Um, there There's actually a, a more literal view uh, in, in focus there. Um, even Jesus Christ himself referred to himself in that matter. He, he referred to himself as the rider in the clouds. Now again, the point is not to describe the oddity of God riding on the clouds for some reason, though I'm sure at times he does that. Uh, Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. So, you know, you could say, you know, you could kind of make a hyper literal point that, but, but the, the idea is it's not just talking about that. The point is to state that Baal is not the one in charge. Yahweh, uh, Jesus, uh, the Trinity, God is. It's a deliberate swipe at the belief that uh, Baal has everlasting dominion by taking his title and attributing it to the true God, Yahweh. It's, it's the only example, or this is only one example of a polemic in the Bible. There's, there's many, many more that we could go through. Now, some of the most interesting uh, polemics can be found in the creation accounts of the Bible. So the idea of polemics uh, can also help explain some of the diff- uh, differing descriptions between these accounts. So for example, we can compare Genesis 1, 1 through 1-3 with Psalm uh, 74, uh, 12. Now, first, Genesis 1, 1 through 1-3 uh, states, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Now, next in uh, Psalm seventy-four, twelve through seventeen, it says, "Yet my God, yet yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks." You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights in the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Now, here it appears we have two pretty different sounding accounts. So in Genesis, we learn that God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. There was darkness over the face of the deep. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and, and God began his creation by creating light. Now, the account in Genesis establishes the conflict between God and primordial chaos, represented by the uh, sea and a sea monster in the very second verse of the Bible. So, that word translated deep, uh, hovering over the face of the deep, that's actually the Hebrew word to home. That's a cognate, which means same word, different language, to the Akkadian temtum. Which, in turn, is a variant for it of Tiamat, the Sumerian name for the chaos monster of the sea, so you could say that the, the 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 spirit of God was hovering over the Tiamat of the waters so so why did the Spirit of God hover over the waters uh, although there there is no record here of the conflict between Yahweh and the deep. Um, or or uh excuse me, I said face of the it's face of the waters, face of the deep, so it'd be the the face of, of Tiamat, like the Spirit of God was hovering over Tiamat. I believe I said that wrong uh a moment ago. But although there again there's no record here of the conflict between Yahweh and the deep or Tiamat, it seems as though the intent is to restrain something chaos itself. Now, Psalm 74 is a little bit different. We learn that God is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth, which again, at the beginning, would have only been water. Uh, We then learn that God divides the seas, which in Genesis occurs at Genesis uh, 1-6. He breaks the heads of the sea monsters, along with crushing the heads of Leviathan, which is strange. Now, later we learn that God establishes the heavenly lights in the sun, which... Again, in Genesis doesn't occur till the fourth day, described in Genesis 1, 14 through 19. So it's generally believed among biblical scholars that Psalm 74 and Genesis 1 are likely polemics of the Baal cycle. That is to say that they are attempts to take credit away from Baal for subduing chaos or Leviathan, Tiamat, and giving proper credit to Yahweh for this and for creation itself. Now, it's uh, known from Tablets found in Syria over the last 150 years or so that uh, Semites of Western Mesopotamia and uh, the Amorites and Canaanites believed that it was their storm god Baal who had subdued the chaos monster. Uh, so here here's a quote. Thus says Adad, I brought you back to the throne of your father. I brought you back the weapons with which I fought Tiamat. I gave to you with the oil of my bitter victory. I anointed you, and no one before you could stand. Now, Adad there, or Adad, is the actual name of the West Semitic storm god we know in the Bible is Baal. Baal is actually a title, Lord. Um the that excerpt is that I just read that quote is from a letter from Adad to his prophet Abaya to the king of Mari Zimri Lim. Um the the god was apparently reminding Zimri Lim that the king had been restored to power by his divine favor favor which uh included sending to Zimri Lim the clubs that he used to defeat Tiamat. Now another tablet found at Mari, which was located on the Euphrates River near the modern border between Syria and Iraq, confirms that those clubs had been sent from Aleppo, which was known as the city of Adad. So these were actual physical things, and they were sent to the temple of Dagon, the earlier spelling of the Philistine god Dagon. At the town of Turka, which is uh, south of Mari. Now, while that's a fascinating bit of history, think about that. The divine clubs of Baal were literal, physical objects. Isn't that strange? The point here is that Zimri Lim ruled at the same time as Hammurabi, uh, the great of Babylon, uh, which is about the time scholars believe the Enuma Elish was composed. And at least 400 years before the Baal Cycle. So it appears that even between Baal and Marduk, there was some competition over who actually defeated the monstrous god of chaos. And we have to remember that ancient Near Eastern people would not have had the type of scientific, literal, and material point of view that we currently have in the Western world. Uh their view would have been more symbolic. Now, this doesn't mean that it's any less real or true. It's just a different way of looking at the world. It, it, when we look at the sea, we think of ocean currents and marine biology, but when they looked at it, they thought of Leviathan, Tiamat, Latanu, chaos, and death. So what we have in Genesis 1 and Psalm 74, it's, it's not exactly a scientific description of how everything was created, although I will say I do believe everything was literally created that way. But it's also a a polemic describing who gets credit for creating everything. So according to the Bible, it's not Baal, it's not Marduk, it's Yahweh. Now, one might wonder, if that's a polemic, where is the battle? Now, it is true, we do not see an epic battle in Genesis 1. We do see a description of a defeat in Psalm 74, but it's still pretty different when compared against the Baal cycle. The idea being conveyed here by the biblical writers is that when Yahweh of Israel started creation, these chaotic forces were already held in check. That's the difference. There was no need for a battle because Yahweh is just that strong. He's just that great. Leviathan was already bound right at the moment of creation because the one true God doesn't need to have a fight. This, this would have been considered a, a total slap in the face to the Canaanite religion and the inferior God Baal. It's saying that Yahweh is the God who is truly in control and always has been. Yahweh, not Baal, restricts chaos. So, if a Canaanite living at the time were to read the Genesis count of creation, he would understand instantly what the text was doing. It's busting down Baal and lifting up Yahweh as supreme. Now, we see that same sort of thing in Psalm 89, 9 through 11, which reads, quote, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. Now we also see that idea repeated as an apocalyptic idea in Isaiah 27, verse 1, which reads, uh, quote, In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, uh in Psalm eighty-nine, Rahab is a name uh for for Egypt. Some people say that it's a name for whatever planet came from the you know, that created the asteroid belt when it was destroyed. You know, maybe, but but Rahab is also a name for Egypt. It's also equated with the sea beast Leviathan. So in Isaiah twenty-seven, we read of a time in the future when chaos is not simply subdued, but it's done away with forever. Uh, consider this. This is, this is what John N. Oswalt's commentary uh, on the book of Isaiah says about this. Quote, Most scholars today are in agreement that while the Exodus events are in the center of the writer's thinking, they are not by any means all that is there. Rahab is clearly a term for Egypt. Uh, uh, 30, uh, chapter 30, verse 7 in Psalm 87, 4, where Rahab and Babylon are, pair, are paired So also, the monster or dragon is a term for Pharaoh, Ezekiel 29.3. But it also is clear that those terms are not limited to those historical reference. uh, reference. As is known from Ugarit studies, the twisting monster is a figure in the struggles of Baal with the god of the sea, Yam, as is Leviathan, which is equated with the monster in Isaiah 27.1. Given these facts and the evidence, that the myth of the struggle of the gods with the sea monster was known in one form or another over all the ancient Near East, one has reason to believe that Isaiah is here, as in 27.1, utilizing this acquaintance among the people for his own purposes. It is important to note that the allusions to Near Eastern myths in the Bible all occur after 750 B.C., long after the ba- the basic anti-mythic character of biblical faith had been established. Thus, there is an appeal here neither to some current Hebrew myth nor to some original one now dead. Rather, just as a contemporary poet might allude to the Iliad or the Odyssey, utilizing imagery familiar to his hearers, but that is hardly part of their belief system. So Isaiah uses the imagery of the well-known stories of creation to make this point. It was not Baal or Marduk or Asher who had any claim to being the creator. It was the Lord alone, end quote. So the idea coming out of uh, comparing Psalm 74 with Genesis, uh, Genesis 1 is that by the time the actual creation starts, Leviathan chaos is already subdued. So that that would seem to indicate in the text, at least in the minds of the writers of these passages, that a lot more is going on with Genesis one one through three than we're typically taught in Sunday school. We we learn in the very first verse that God created the heavens and the earth. However, what was that process like? What were the conditions? How long did it take? You know, we're not we're not told specifically. I mean, yes, we're given the the six days and the seventh day of rest, uh, but the entire process, where we're not told specifically. We're given a lot of information, um, but it's not specifically only that. It's not only a scientific explanation of what happened. Uh, but we are given clues if we think of this as a polemic on ancient Canaanite religion. This can actually help us piece together more of, again, what I would still consider a literal account. Now, whether taken as literal or just merely symbolic, and, and by the way, I, I don't, I don't recommend the 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 only or merely symbolic view, where people will take the Bible and just make a symbol out of everything. I don't recommend that uh, at all. I think that's dangerous territory. Um, I, I think that the literal view is the correct view. Uh, or the serious view, as as Chuck Missler would say, he he would say uh, he doesn't take it literally. He takes it seriously, because you know any time that you say you take the Bible literally, you get people saying, oh well, then you believe Jesus is a door and you believe we're literally salt. No, that's hyperliteral. That that's that's a hyperliteralism that nobody nobody holds. Nobody thinks that it's a straw man. It's a it's a weak argument. Uh, and we, a, as people who take the Bible literally, we get. We, we get that quite a bit we get that thrown at us quite a bit no that's not what it means. <clears throat> uh, no one thinks that. Uh, I, however on the other hand there are people that will make symbols out of everything and that's not a straw man that that is actually a, a real thing that happens unfortunately in, in most most churches throughout most of uh, church history has been like that and uh, it's, it's a real problem. But whether taken as literal or symbolic, the texts here uh, indicate a creation story unlike anything that we're ever taught in the church, Uh, but one uh, that biblical scholars are very familiar with. The the sea represents chaos, yet as we see in Genesis 1-2, Uh, You know, Chapter 1, verse 2, chaos is already subdued by the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. The battle is over before it really even began. Uh, Now, whether Leviathan is meant to be understood as a literal sea beast in a spiritual existence or as a symbol for the very real chaos of nature, that's unknown. I, I believe in a literal Leviathan. I think there is a literal spiritual creature out there called Leviathan and is this sea beast that God is subduing. Uh, and I believe that because it shows up in prophecy in very real and literal ways. Um, but it could be both. It could be both a literal sea beast, but also a, a symbol for chaos. But in any event, the text allows us a little bit more freedom in understanding creation than we may have been previously taught. Now, there's other interesting things to pull out from this idea as well. We find out in the book of Genesis that once the water is still and chaos is subdued, God starts to create order from disorder. So this idea, order from disorder, is common throughout ancient Near Eastern religious texts. Yet the writer of Genesis uh, gives proper credit to Yahweh, the God of Israel. To the writer of Genesis, the other lesser gods have tried to usurp Yahweh's accomplishments and attributes, so he wishes to set the record straight. The, the main reason for reiterating this point is that there are members of occult uh, and pagan circles today who follow doctrines related to you know, order out of chaos or as above, so below and, and others. Uh, and since in our culture today, those are recognized as doctrines followed outside of Christianity, it's worth repeating the point of polemic here. It it seems that the the writer of Genesis was dealing with a similar issue in his day. So to, again, set the record straight, he gives credit to Yahweh for these matters instead of allowing the lesser gods to usurp and defile them. Now, uh, we we have a lot more here to talk about. Uh, I mentioned prophecy earlier. I want to talk about specifically where Leviathan and Behemoth show up in end times. And this is why I believe that these are literal Creatures. Spiritual. I I don't believe they're dinosaurs. I do believe that they're literal spiritual creatures, uh, and they're not just merely symbols, because they show up, literally, in end times prophecy as uh, maybe some familiar figures that you you might recognize once we talk about them. Uh, But not only do they show up in the Bible, but also in extra-biblical texts as well. Now, the biblical ones are going to surprise you. The extra biblical ones are going to astound you. But we are going to have to do all of that in the members-only section right after this. Dr. Ken Johnson and I if uh, if those of you out there are familiar with Dr. Ken Johnson he's been a guest on before we're going to have him back on again to talk about this calendar but um, he has a website called dsscalendar.org and it's basically an online version of the Dead Sea Scroll Calendar which is a great resource, it's for free anybody can use it but it does also mean that you have to, it's not an app it's a website so you have to pull out your phone every time you want to look at it and, and scroll around and look for things. So I I reached out to Ken and I said, hey, what would you think about us uh, kind of like going into business together? But what, what would you say about producing a print calendar? Because I, I know how to do that. He already designed the calendar. So the hard work's done. I know how to get it into print and get it out to people. What, what do you say? And he was all for it. He was excited about it. So Ken and I worked together and produced the ancient Dead Sea Scroll calendar in print form. And this is for this year. Uh, and it, it's, it's absolutely beautifully uh, printed. There are eight different styles, eight different uh, versions of this calendar that people can get if they want to. But basically what you have is, I don't know if people can see that, but you have the Dead Sea Scroll. Uh, Calendar on the top with all the feast days and everything, and then on the bottom you have the normal, just American, regular kind of calendar. Even uh, even if you if you get the square one, the square style, you even get like pictures for St. Patrick's Day and the holidays and stuff like that. Uh, So that is for this year. It starts in March, so don't think, well, it's four months into the year by now. There's no point in getting one. The Dead Sea Scroll calendar starts in March, so it's a great time to pick one up. But as I said. We also have uh, several other options. We have three different poster versions, which are just, you know, they're just posters. Uh, we have three different versions of that. We have um, a desk calendar style. Uh, so, you know, th- this is like if you if you have a family member or a friend or something that has a desk job or something, this is this is a great. Gift, uh, and then we also have this little CD case version, which is I thought this was a uh, pretty innovative and cool. But it just opens like a CD, but you can stand it on your desk like that, and then it's uh, you just have cards. They they come out as cards. There's uh, the calendar on one side, and then there's uh, the American holidays on the on the back side. And you just set it on your on your desk or wherever like that. So if people want that, there is a link in the description below. And by the time this episode airs, we should have uh, the link right at dailyrenegade.com. So if you go to dailyrenegade.com right now, you should, if I'm timing this out right, you should see a graphic right on the page on the login screen. You don't have to be a member to take advantage of this, but uh, it'll, uh, we'll put it right on the login screen. DailyRenegade.com, you'll see a graphic there. You can click on that, pick your calendar, and uh, we'll we'll keep doing this every year. Or you can go to Dr. Ken Johnson's website, BibleFacts.org, or DSSCalendar.org, and you can see the same graphic there and get it there. Either way, it takes you to the same place, and uh, your purchase of a calendar goes both to help support Ken's ministry and Daily Renegade. So uh, if you already know that you love us both and you want a calendar, that's the place to go. Uh, Okay, so we are going to take a break and we're going to pick this back up in the members only section. If you haven't had a chance yet, again, please go to dailyrenegade.com and get a membership today. If you get a monthly or yearly membership, you'll have full access uh, to my newest film dealing with how Christians should look at the UFO disclosure movement that's been opening up more and more in our government today. It seems like every day now we're getting new uh, news headlines on how the government is admitting to more and more and more. Well, how are we as Christians to respond to that? And what is this connection between UFO disclosure events and major events in Israel's uh, history and geopolitics in the Middle East? Because things are heating up there, too. And these two seemingly different things uh, converge somehow. So the film gets into all that. Um, and it, it, I'm in it. Derek Gilbert is in it. Uh, we have uh, Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis, uh, Steve Ciccolani, uh Pastor Steve, if you guys uh, know him from, from YouTube and other various places my wife Christina is in it. So it's a great lineup. It's also narrated by Zachary Lautitas. If you're familiar with that show Prison Break, he was in that. He's been in a couple other movies and stuff since then. But he actually got me and Derek's book, The Day the Earth Stands Still, which is what this film is based on. Uh, he got a hold of that about a year ago, and uh, it, it really inspired him to reach out to me and Derek and then do some research uh, on his own. So we're going to be having him on the show sometime soon because he's got some amazing insights uh, especially just being connected with Hollywood and seeing what's going on there. This is a truly historic moment. It will be known as the Abraham Accord. Ever since the news broke of the peace agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, many Christians have been wondering what it all means. Is it significant? Is it momentous and historic? Or could it even be prophetic? Most importantly, after this, what comes next? Everybody said this would be impossible. That film, What Comes Next, that is only available for paying members. But if you want a free trial, there are still some free things for you. Uh, most specifically, we have a free episode of The Sharpening Report right now with financial expert and Christian Terry Saka right on the front page of dailyrenegade.com, which explains the financial crisis that we're in now and how we as Christians can safely protect our assets with an actual Christian company. This company is amazing. It's basically a ministry effort for us Christians, and it's done through precious metals. So you can go there uh, or just go to Cornerstone Assets in the link in the description below and request more uh, information. I have some silver myself, and I believe that every Christian should absolutely be doing this instead of trusting satanic organizations and doomed-to-fail currency options such as fiat and the banks and all all of that with with your resources uh, and what you leave behind for your family. At least with Cornerstone, you're um, working with Christians. You, you You have to protect yourself, your family, your assets, and Cornerstone is the only Christian company that I trust with something so important and vital. So check it out. Uh, More information at dailyrenegade.com. Go ahead and watch that episode of The Sharping Report. It's free for everybody and get the information. Now, if you haven't had a chance yet, head on over to dailyrenegade.com and get a membership today where we will continue our teaching on the chaos dragon and monster, uh, Leviathan and Behemoth. This is a chaos creature of the sea, Leviathan, and a chaos creature of the land, behemoth. We're going to talk about that, how they show up uh, in end times prophecy, and are we going to be seeing these creatures in our lifetime? There is a time where, yes, they are subdued, but there's a time where God unsubdues. He lets go what happens then uh well you're going to have to come become a member and find out you can get a trial version uh if if you don't know if you want to financially support us yet but uh, if you do want to help us out that would be that would be excellent and we could really use your support so head on over to dailyrenegade.com get a membership today members hang on the line everyone else take care and god bless